0: Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santo Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participant's workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider.
1: And I'm just going to start by actually introducing you and welcoming you, Eduardo, and I'm going to welcome Santosh Rao, my co-host, and I'm his co-host for the Integrative Oncology Talks. And this is my first time um, in the the hot seat hosting um, an Integrative Oncology Talk session and Santosh will be co-hosting. So between the two of us, we'll probably be bombarding you with interesting questions, but To start, I guess, is introducing you and you're a man of uh, such an incredible, when I read your biography, you've done so much for the field of supportive care, palliative care and integrative oncology. I didn't know really where to start. So I have a copy of your bio and I'll read out some of it, but I think we'll just um, fill that in at some stage as we're going along. So I've met you many years ago, Eduardo, when I was working in palliative care, and I know that you are a man who started your career in Argentina in medical oncology and graduated uh, in the 19, oh, I don't know what year, I won't say, but in 1984, you went over to Edmonton <laughs> and, um, and uh, in Edmonton in Canada, and there you you were the director of the clinical and academic it, palliative care program until 1999 and during that stage somewhere the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Score was born which has influenced all of our lives and probably changed all of our lives in, in clinical practice. So um, we thank you for that. But your main, from 1999 onwards you've been at MD Anderson and the Director of Rehabilitation Palliative Care, Rehabilitation and Integrative Medicine, which is a the this overarching amazing title. And Eduardo has been um, really interested and really guided all of us and has been uh, a distant mentor, I guess, in even not in person, but just through all the thousands of articles that you've published in teasing out the physical, the psychosocial distress of patients with who are living with advanced cancer and and people who are and their families, and publishing um, literally thousands of articles in not only in palliative care and supportive care, but also in integrative oncology, integrative medicine, and in self-care. And particularly during COVID, some really important publications have just come out. Hundreds, if not thousands, have invited lectures and speakers and, and um, multiple awards, including the National International Awards from the American Cancer Society, the Lane Adams Quality of Life Award, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine Lifetime Achievement Award, the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians has established the Eduardo Barrera Award, which is pretty amazing, an honorary doctorate degree at the University of Montreal and um, probably a lot more Eduardo. But um, I think that sets the scene. You're running probably a pretty amazing department and very prolific when it comes to research and output. So I think our focus rather than on um, is really to to try and work out how integrative oncology, integrative medicine fits into this whole uh, supportive care and comprehensive cancer care delivery. So I thought I'd ask really by just tell us why you're doing this work and what drove you to uh, head on the path and um, why are you so passionate about this space?
2: Thank you, Judy, for this Wonderful introduction that I wrote for you ten minutes ago. No, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I, I am really delighted to to join you and Santosh and in these, in these wonderful opportunities to, to to brainstorm and to and to reminisce and to plan and to think together about uh, our field, um, it, specifically um, the uh, my. Uh, personal uh, love for this field started during my training in medical oncology where I saw that uh, we were so focused on the disease and there was so little room for the person carrying that disease and there was so little emphasis on assessing the physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological suffering and offering ways to relieve these patients that I became quite frustrated with with my discipline, with oncology. Mm. Uh, And so I decided that I wanted to focus in an area where we could um, um, look at the person carrying that tumor to our center rather than uh, so focused on the tumor. And and then I decided that this was something I wanted to do. Of course, we did not have a specialty in uh, palliative care, as, as we do not have one right now in, in- integrative oncology or even in, in cancer rehabilitation. So they were all pioneer fields. Uh, and um, one of the ch- challenges was to, to start uh, generating a little bit of credibility and a body of knowledge. Uh, uh, and over the years, that is what uh, drove me personally to uh, a field that uh, looks at all the uh, terrible physical, emotional, and psychological and spiritual suffering of somebody who gets the diagnosis of cancer and ways to uh, improve the quality of the life of the patient and the family. And also the, the clinicians, the clinicians who are dealing with these patients and are so ill prepared by medical school, residency, and fellowship on the assessment and management of suffering. And so that was in a sense what has kept me ticking like the um, dura bunny and I'm still doing that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think that that uh, energy has really um, helped some of us keep that energy up as well because there's so much to do in this space. And... Um, I'm really motivated and very interested, actually, in um, both of us started in the field of palliative care, and I have moved very much into supportive care and integrative oncology, seeing that it fits seamlessly into the continuum of, of this care for the whole person. But I'm just really interested in how you see it all fitting together. It's such a big area, and as this overarching I see your name on you know so many publications, and you're so involved as a um, a senior author on publications on yoga, on meditation and cancer, on acupuncture and cancer, and uh, you're working now with the Society of Integrative Oncology on the ASCO guidelines for pain and integrative medicine, which we'll get to a bit later. But how do you see this all fitting together, and why and um, why is it so important to look outside of the box as to ways to help patients?
2: That's a, that's, a, that's a very important question. That's perhaps the question that has at least driven me into, into what I've been doing for all these years. That is, uh, there's no doubt that there is a neglect of suffering by our cancer centers, by our academic hospitals, by our faculties of medicine. Uh, the person is not important uh, for the powerful. I mean, drug companies, granting agencies, academic profile, it's all disease related, it's all illness related. And that is what has fueled uh, the enormous body of knowledge we have, uh, but not always fueled the judgment, not always fueled the wisdom about how to use all that knowledge. And and so all of us who have witnessed all that disease almost obsession and investment on disease management, and have not seen the the, the growth in the, in the personhood aspect of care, they feel that there is a need to establish a better balance and to have within our healthcare institutions places of true healing, places where the person can feel heard, can feel um, attended, can feel... Uh, um, honored in their personhood, and they don't have to be in any way alternatives. They don't have to be different. They can be part of the overall patient experience, and that's what we've been trying to establish for for all these years. Uh, You raise a very important point, that is um, uh, the aspects of of personhood care include everything from uh, the ESAS to understand what your issues are, what your suffering is today, your your assessment of your medications, but all the way to the way you handle your life, your your diet, your activity, your relationship to others, your spirituality, and all that is part of who we are. Uh, I always heard um, concerns by more negative. Colleagues, of course, they're more negative towards integrative oncology than they are about supportive and palliative care, because I think that is more of an established area. It has been there Mm. for longer. But about integrative issues, I always tell my colleagues, my oncologists, well, you believe there's not a lot of evidence, but don't you have some music you like? Don't you have some diet you prefer? Don't you have some activities that you engage on yourself? Because if you're doing that yourself and your family, you're applying integrative practices into your life. So would it be uh, in any way surprising to you that our patients, when they get run over by a truck of being diagnosed with a cancer, might want some guidance and some help about how to handle those integrative aspects. If you are doing that to your own life and your family, wouldn't your patients benefit from having access to that. And that sometimes convinces our colleagues that um, those are important aspects of of personhood.
3: Eduardo, uh, first of all, thank you for for being here. And I I do think that your voice commands a lot of presence um, in those conversations. I'm just curious about how uh, the integrative oncology community can learn from the journey that palliative care has gone through? I mean, first of all, was it always, was palliative care always perceived um, with the supportive kind of tone or, or has it taken time because now palliative care um, is part and parcel of cancer care? Um, and how would you suggest that we message uh, what we're trying to accomplish with integrative? Because I see a lot of overlap between our goals when we talk about palliative and integrative, which is why I think both of you are doing supportive supportive oncology, we're all talking about supporting patients, but how do we get to the point where integrative oncology is not seen as something that may be uh, fighting the evidence, et cetera, but is, you know, kind of evidence-based and non, you know, doesn't have as much harm and is generally, uh, you know, supportive?
2: Yeah. Well, you're identifying Santosh the challenge of changing a culture. And I think that we need to respect and understand the culture of our institutions and our faculties of medicine, because by respecting and understanding it, we can destroy it completely and do it right. So that's part of the challenge. Uh, get to know it so you can break it into pieces and make it a different culture, a culture that has the patient in it. And that was the big challenge. Uh, palliative care was seen in a horrible way, in a horrible way for many, many, many years. So it, it's still not seen with benign neglect by the majority, but it was seen uh, in a very, very negative way. And several years ago, I wrote a paper on the changes of the culture. How do you change the culture? And I think I described four stages in the development of a palliative care culture in an institution, in a hospital, in a medical school, in a health system. The first is denial. That is, we don't have these problems. The the patients are happy, with their have we send them to hospice and nobody's really suffering very much and because I'm not measuring anything people are not really suffering, they're not having major problems. And it is necessary to break denial to start changing the culture. And that required doing things such as going into a place and asking 100 patients to tell us how happy they were to have cancer with their ESAS and so on, and how free of symptoms they were taking no painkillers for their pain. And Surprise, surprise, patients were expressing a tremendous amount of suffering, and that broke uh, denial. Now you move into the second stage that was what we called polyphobia, that is, fear, whenever the P word was pronounced by a lot of people who feared this new area coming to take the bread from their plates or to uh, do weird things to the patients or to threaten their phase one or phase two research studies. And of course, polyphobia results in lots of people attacking very aggressively uh, the new discipline that is trying to come uh, on board. And then there are strategies to address polyphobia, and we, we applied those. That is, don't go to the auditorium and give a talk. They're going to kill you because you're not powerful. Go stealth. Uh, look at two or three doctors who will send you patients, buy them breakfast and and start seeing patients with them, Uh, have the patients feel better, have the patients feel more confident and, and, and improve and have that colleague who sends you the patients go home earlier because they send you the patients. And when you have 100 or 150 patients treated in the institution, now is the time to go public into the auditorium and say, look, all the fears that you might express, because in absence of data, all opinions are good, and those people have bigger microphones, all those fears were not, did not happen. The patients were happy. Uh, the, the referring doctors were happy. Here's the 150 patients. And then you go through polyphobia, and now you go into the most dangerous stage that is called palilalia, that is repetitive, senseless talk about palliative without any resources or administrative structures where people say, yes, this is so important, our patients need this, we should be doing this, but they don't give you any positions. And that's where most (laughs) of the palliative care programs collapse and actually in Houston, we had many programs that collapsed because of palliolalia. You get two referrals, two referrals, two referrals. One day you come to work and you have 17 referrals. The next day you have 18 referrals. The next day you quit because it's it's impossible to survive that palilalia stage so it requires techniques to now break through palilalia and that might include uh, doing things like as measuring Uh, How early do you come to work, and how how early do the internists or gastroenterologists come to work? And in my institution, it was very hard because I went to my boss and said, "Hey, we're we're starting very early in the morning, and we're still staying until very late." And my boss would say, "Everybody does that, Eduardo. Everybody (laughs) comes at six o'clock in the morning. Everybody goes home at eight o'clock at night. So what are you talking about? So what did we have to do? Well, we had to measure, and what did we measure? Well. In Texas, we were able to measure it with the parking records. And so we <laughs> saw so when people put their card over. And I had my research team, instead of doing. Re- what they doing that, just- they collecting, yeah, they're collecting parking data. And so when I had enough parking data, I went to my boss again and I said, hey, we have an incredible paper that is a true integrative paper that we need to publish. And and he said, well, what's happening? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Uh, All your faculty come to work at six o'clock in the morning, but their cars arrive like two hours later. (laughs) And then (laughs) your faculty go home at eight o'clock, but by that time, their car has already left three hours before. Well, my faculty do not have that miracle. My faculty arrive at this time, with their cars and leave, and so the response at that point was, well, shut up, Eduardo. How many positions do you need so that you got a similar number? So finding measures. Now you move into the final stage, that is the active and now people put resources and they put uh, and they put administrative structures so people can work in a safe manner, and you have benchmarks for productivity that are safe for everybody. So I would say that the journey of palliative was marked by those stages. And it sometimes regresses because you get a new chief medical officer, a new president, a new CEO, and they see things in a regressive manner. So it's like a Sisyphus type of challenge sometimes. And you have to educate these new bosses and to uh, move back up into the palliative stage, I would say that from an integrative perspective, I would see that similar stages of culture change are necessary. From integrative denial to integrophobia, to integrolalia, to integrative, And then you can see where you are and you can see what you need to get you uh, each time into, into, a, into a more developed stage.
1: And I think that, thank you so much, Eduardo, and somebody who's been through that similar journey with palliative care and developing palliative care in Australia, It is, it was a lot of work. And when I moved into integrative oncology and developing our department, I'm, you know, even though our department is is growing and I've got six-week wait lists and I'm the first one in and the last one to leave, I'm the only person leaving at 7 or 8 o'clock every evening, all the other guys pack up, the lights are off in the hospital when I leave. It is really interesting that that what we're selling is actually fantastic. You know, we're selling something um, from all the understanding of palliative care. And I think a lot of people working in integrative oncology oncology particularly at MD Anderson have palliative care training as their background it's really looking at moving it and using integrative oncology and supportive care almost as a vehicle to move this into the place where it should be which is it from the time of diagnosis and um, integrating it into that space of from the time of diagnosis it's a having that proactive approach to symptom management, symptom clusters, integrating patient-reported outcomes into care, and proactively addressing every symptom which you know people are going to develop and using a more holistic um, approach. So you've brought all your team forward in integrative oncology. Do you think you've been successful in integrating uh, integrative medicine into A big institution like MD Anderson uh, through changing the name from palliative care to supportive care through developing an integrative medicine department and through embedding research?
2: I I think we just started started the journey. The journey is still, I'm not going to see it. I'm 66, I'm not going to see it. I think it's getting there, but, uh, but it's not going to be there uh, anytime soon. Um, I think that the changing name was useful, um, but the changing name was simply to address the, the, the enormous amount of polyphobia that existed. And so that uh, people felt that we were going to have patients lose hope and that they did not want to refer patients too early. And then Um, basically the change in name was just uh, a way to uh, reduce that resistance. And it did work. It did move patients way earlier in the trajectory of illness. changed,
1: yeah. Uh, It does has changed things.
2: Yes, it did change a lot of things. And then having um, a home for our three teams to feel safe also helped a lot. When you had people uh, who were uh, doing palliative or integrative and one was appointed through internal medicine, the other one through oncology, the other one through family medicine. They were always the ugly duckling in their academic structure and they were uh, assessed by benchmarks that were not safe for productivity and therefore they got, they got punished for doing what they were doing, for spending a bit more time and not generating procedures and, and downstream revenue as much as other, other colleagues. So having an administrative home Uh, provides provides, uh, safety to those uh, working in this pioneer area. But I would like to say to those colleagues working uh, for uh, uh, SIOM and and getting into this field that it will be a long journey. It's not something that will succeed in the next five to 10 years. I think based on what you and Santosh have uh, mentioned before, if I had to say one area that has helped us a lot has been the continuous interpretation of what I do as a laboratory and measuring and publishing and making ourselves present in the literature show the well-being of our patients uh, because that really uh, gets people's attention. But it will be a very long trip.
3: And I Eduardo, right. how how, okay. how do you how do you imagine success? You know, because when we're looking at uh, MD Anderson or even Judith's program in Australia, some may, some may say that's relatively successful. What is it that you think of when you think of that word success and, and that it's, it's a long-term vision?
2: Well, I, I, would, I would love to hear also Judith's voice on this. But from, from my perspective, um, I usually measure success on what is happening to the patient's And then an ability for patients who come to a cancer center to have a supportive care center that is truly embedded, holistic, huge, where you can go there and we can address all the aspects of your suffering and that a a referring doctor can refer a patient to that center and not have to worry about the person going to receive uh, pain or counseling or integrative approaches. That is up to the team working there to deploy themselves in the way that is more person-centered for that particular patient. That, to me, would be a uh, a great expression of success and the same thing applies to the inpatient setting, that is when a patient gets admitted to a hospital in a state of significant suffering, that we go there not just with the best internal medicine we can offer, but we go there with the best personhood a package of care that we can offer. To me, that, that is the way I think success would look like.
1: So I see, um, and Eduardo, I, I do see you as, I often refer to you as the Che Guevara of um, palliative and supportive care. You're just leading the way and saying, okay, bit of a revolutionary in, in moving this field forward. And it is it, it is hard work and, and you work hard in moving this forward and have succeeded so much. And I actually am always an optimist. So I'm far more optimistic than you and I think we're actually um, a lot closer than I thought we would be in this time. I mean, for us, it's about implementation and implementation, we've got enough evidence thanks to a lot of the work that you and Lorenzo Cohen and Gabriel and Santosh and everybody has done in developing levels of evidence that really support integrative interventions alongside of um, the traditional interventions for management of symptoms and wellness. I think the uh, inter- implementation includes implementation of patient-reported outcome measures, so you're integrating the patient voice from the time of diagnosis and capturing those symptoms and symptom clusters that people experience, and then proactively developing strategies to um, to intervene and to proactively manage the the need for lifestyle changes, the need to integrate exercise from time of diagnosis, uh, the benefits of acupuncture for peripheral neuropathy, which you know they're going to develop, uh, the integration of meditation, uh, and you've done, re- published a recent paper on meditation for the diet um, with people with um, brain tumours, I think it is, and people with uh, brain Mets the integration of yoga into cancer care for proactively managing not only the patient, but also the staff members. I see all of that as success. Can you talk? I mean, I'm, I am a glass half full person. I, I see that as huge success and really moving the field forward.
2: Um, well, I think that's, 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 uh, that's, that's the right way to see it, Judy. I, I personally have always felt that, um, I'm, I'm always aware of the things that I'm not doing rather than the things <laughs> that I achieve. So I, I, I my, my colleague Robin Fain's Singer used to used to always joke about that when, when, when we were in Edmonton, that I could, I could never say that we had achieved anything. We were always <laughs> missing stuff. So I can, I can see that what you're describing is, is wise and it's true. And there has been a lot of progress and, uh, and I think we're doing much, much better than we were doing a decade ago or even five years ago. And I, I think that these um, uh, coming together of organizations that would have despised integrative care um, before, such as ASCO coming with S-I-O-M. And uh, the um, idea that institutions like MD Anderson Cancer Centre would have integrative oncology as a recognized practice uh, tells us a lot. Australians have been very good at personhood care, better than we have. COSA uh, has been, uh, the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia has had a closer relationship with palliative care for many, many years. And I suspect that y'all had a little bit more of an, uh, of an integrative pathway uh, there, uh, a, a little bit better. And of course, people like you who saw the way to get that operationalized, uh, you are really, really breaking a new field in the, into this area. Um, in the United States, the one big challenge is Uh, Financial. The big challenge is to, uh, as they say here, no money, no mission. And then, how do you make a financial case for integrated interventions in reducing unnecessary suffering? How do you put a value to the patient experience? How do you put a value to the decreased burnout of oncologists, nurses, and other members of the team because? the patient is finally feeling taken care of. And that is going to be a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful challenge and a wonderful opportunity. Uh, I am personally a great believer that these practices are beneficial at multiple levels, including financially, and that is going to be one of the challenges in a, in a third-party payer type of system.
1: See, I wish we were so financially Uh, um, sorted in uh, Australia, palliative care I think is, I think uh, breaking the Ground and trying to say, but what about integrative? If we're keeping people living longer, how do we keep people living well? And where is the role for a different approach to care? How do you fund that? And actually, it is quite challenging. So, the more evidence we have and the more we embed evidence into practice, I think we're going to be able to that's our approach anyway be able to move the field forward so that. Um, if we show that people actually with cancer, if they have proactive supportive care with integrative oncology, lifestyle change, exercise, proactive uh, self-empowerment and self-efficacy will actually, um, it will change the dynamic. It will change what cancer means to people and we'll have healthier people living longer with cancer and having cancer treatment. So... I hope we're on the right track, but that's the best way I think to get funding is to try and develop um, the evidence. And that is a bit of a segue to really what, uh, if you could talk a little bit about what um, you're doing with the Society of Integrative Oncology and ASCO with the pain guidelines. I think that's a really um, interesting example of how we can work together as two, as different organizations coming with, uh, wearing different hats to actually move the field forward.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a great initiative and it's, um, it's an opportunity. I, I have to make a disclosure here. <laughs> I am part of that, but I am the ASCO part of it. So I'm great, not the SIO great. part of I it. Know. Uh, and Jun Mao is my partner, my co-chair, and he's from the SIO side. But both of us uh, have um, been able to put together a wonderful team of, of colleagues to uh, do a very thorough a review of, uh, of everything published regarding integrative uh, interventions for the management of pain in patients with cancer at different stages of their disease, from, from the early diagnosis to uh, um, palliative care to survivorship. And uh, that will now be put together in a, in, a, in a paper with specific guidelines for integrative interventions Uh, grading the evidence and and coming up with some recommendations for these integrative uh, interventions. It will have a pragmatic value, that is, it will help uh, cancer-treating clinicians, uh, oncologists, radiation therapists, (coughs) APPs, to identify those interventions that they might recommend to their patients. But to me personally, it has an even more powerful symbolic value, that is, It really brings to the mainstream of cancer medicine the integrative oncology practices. And this will help a lot of people who are running cancer programs think, what is my institution? What is my department? What is my program offering in this particular area? Eduardo, um,
3: I I think the guidelines are very helpful uh, for giving uh, credence. To some of the things that we recommend, it basically gives some kind of official respect to certain things like acupuncture. Um, but at the same time, there are other things from a pragmatic standpoint that don't end up making the cut. Um, you know, I'm just curious what your thoughts are as you've been, you know, in this field, but also doing the guidelines. Are there some things that have jumped out at you that that you think are helpful, but you know, end up getting pushed aside because of lack of evidence? For example. Uh, medical marijuana, I know that you've done some research medical marijuana I don't know if that's part of the pain guidelines, but there are things that that may be of use but they just don't have quality evidence yet.
2: Uh, well, I think that that, that um, a lot of the interventions that you that you referred to Santosh you are I, I, you're quite, quite uh, appropriately uh, saying that um, these guidelines have a huge limit And the limitation is that we don't have the billions of dollars of pharma or NIH or granting agencies pouring millions and millions and millions into academic and non-academic institutions to generate uh, evidence for different interventions. And therefore, we're very handicapped into the level of evidence we can produce. And it's not because we don't have thoughts and ideas about interventions is not because we have methodological limitations, It's because we have no money, because they're not supporting us and because we don't have faculty positions and protected time to be able to do that research. So there will be areas that are not going to be reflected, but the paper is supposed to say in the introduction and in the discussion, What are the opportunities? What should we then be pursuing into into the future? And and so I hope that a couple of tables will clearly outline that there are areas that are not being addressed at this point or have not been addressed that are wonderful areas for colleagues doing uh, integrative oncology around the world to coalesce, to put themselves together and say, if I put five patients and you put 10 patients and you put two patients and you put three patients, guess what? Now we have a case series. Now we have 20, 30, 50, 80 patients. Now we have a paper. So I hope that will inspire people who are not always involved in clinical research and they say that's somebody else's business to say, I can make this my business. I can have a serious and connect with 5 or 10 or 15 other colleagues, and we can have a 100 patient series, and now we're putting our intervention into the literature for the first time.
1: And I think um, I see, and being involved in the leadership group of SIO and Santosh is on the board, really seeing that these guidelines make a difference. I mean, for the, the breast cancer guidelines that were released a few years ago, changed practice for us, and now we're From those guidelines, we're now uh, encouraged to run a hospital-wide implementation program in our early breast cancer group, and a number of other hospitals are doing the same, because there is a body of evidence, and even if it says you've got level C evidence, it means, okay, there are some gaps, but there's also the level A and B evidence for certain interventions, such as meditation and um, and for uh, anxiety and well-being. So I think That these guidelines to me would assist in the integration process, in applying for funding and getting those extra people on board. I think it's also really interesting when we look at um, what's happening with cancer, and we're now keeping people living longer with cancer. People with stage four cancer are on phase one trials, people with stage one, stage four cancer are receiving disease-modifying therapies that are actually keeping them living longer with an advanced cancer. And so the opioid crisis and the use of drugs that we've used so often in palliative care of opioids and benzodiazepines and drugs of potential addiction need to be reviewed, and we need to look at alternatives to that. Um, and it would be interesting to see if this work in um in looking at the level of evidence for pain management using other techniques that are non-pharmacological may uh, improve or change the way we address cancer pain. Yeah.
2: I I completely agree. The the, uh, the use of these uh, these, uh, interventions can help at at multiple levels, can help uh, reduce opiates in some cases, can help avoid opiates in other cases, can help patients who are not eligible for opiate therapy due to their pain syndrome in other cases. And I think it's, it's a matter of, 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 of getting the papers written up. And, and, um, and, and I think that's the only way. I mean, if, if, if everybody working in this field uh, sees their clinical setting as the true laboratory where they are now doing pioneer work, they are exploring a new continent of care, And documenting what you're doing in your medical records and then doing retrospective studies about what you found and what you did is research. This is the beginning of research. Uh, What inspired me many, 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 many years ago to get into, into some of these areas where this type of consensus papers written by people. Uh, one many, many, many years ago, but Kekexia, written by by my, my old boss, Neil McDonald at that time. I read it and basically I said, my goodness, uh, there are some areas here where some research could be done. And down in South America, I did a randomized controlled trial of methylprednisolone because they said this was something that had not been investigated well enough. And I had access to a cheap drug in a developing country. And I said, gee, this is something I might contribute. Uh, I did it. So um, I believe in the value of the written word. I believe that, that publishing is helpful. And I think that um, anyone can make a contribution. You can write a letter, a research letter, a little survey. You can write a, a, a very small paper and that will make the field get better. Better over time, so I think it's a collective movement to to move the field. If we if we wait for the big academic institutions to 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 make the leap, it's going to take longer than if we see it as all of us can make a little contribution.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's the um, uh, the collaboration between. Um, I don't think MD Anderson is such a small institution, but the co- <laughs> the collaboration between all of the the large clinical institutions that have academic uh, units in them or people interested in research actually working and collaborating together um, and collecting data in the same way. And I think that's where the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Score has made a profound difference to cancer care. Um, The simplicity of... Um, I using something as both a clinical tool and a research tool. I think has really, which I think you've led in your research process, is a really good way for people in integrative oncology. I think to get started. I don't know um, if you want to give any advice on how you get started for people in um, collecting and collating that research in um, in integrative oncology.
2: Right, and that, that's 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 you know the. As many things we did over the years, the Edmonton, the ESAS, the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Systems, it was born out of frustration. We were seeing those patients and, you know, some, there was, there was a tool for pain that you asked 12 questions, a tool for fatigue that you asked 15 questions, a tool for depression that you asked 12 questions, uh, you know, a, a tool for nausea that you asked another 12 questions. So. It was an interrogation session with a poor patient who was sitting there. uh, And then we said, this makes no sense. First of all, we don't have the time to do this. Second, our patients don't have the patience to do this. And then if we want to see them again, we need to ask another 12 questions. Let's just ask one, one from zero to 10, nothing else. And that's it. And then we came up with that and, and patients were doing it and our nurses were happy and our team was able to do it. And so over the years, we noticed that it was Useful, and then we saw weird things. We saw that people were—I mean, this is personal. This is not about the tumor. This is a person. And so we saw people coming up with all kind of modules and saying, "Well, you might have vaginal discharge, or you might have hiccups, or you might have this." Uh, the core of the suffering experience of an individual is not led by the type of primary tumor. It's led by the fact that they have a life-threatening illness and the symptoms of life-threatening illness are very simple so i see and i'm going to do clinic tomorrow i'm going to see 12 patients i'm going to see patients with probably 10 or 12 different uh, cancers i will never use a module for one or another or another that is not clinical care that's research the the patient might have hiccup but that is not the problem the problem is that they're having a cancer and so i would like to reassure our colleagues that you don't really need to go into extensive measurement, that you don't have to measure different for each of the different cancers that you'll see, that we're all persons, I don't know which one is going to hit me, which one is going to hit Judy, which one one is going to hit Santosh, but I can predict that we're going to have a suffering experience that will be captured by something like the ESAS or something like that. So I would like to reassure our colleagues that, You don't need to have sophisticated tools. On the other hand, if you are going to spend considerable amount of time with a patient or with a patient's relative or with a colleague who's receiving an integrative intervention, please measure. Please measure, because if you do not measure, even with a very simple tool, you won't have that much to convince a cynical reader that what you did worked from the perspective of that receiver or the ones who received it. So please do, do anything you want, but do it very simple and do it on a regular basis. And that will be the basis of you coming to the Congress, uh, publishing it and going to your administrators.
1: And I think it is um, that message has really come through because now, you know, we're running it across all the cancer Eventually integrating it into cancer care throughout my state, anyway, and using the ESAS as really, you know, very important uh, part of guidelines. So I, you know, wear many hats. One of the hats in my hospital is also trying to uh, run the steering committee to integrate ESAS across the whole hospital. It's already in my department, and I thank you uh, for that. Watching it in action, actually, in your supportive care clinic and in your integrative medicine clinic and seeing how it really informed the consultation and also informs the research. And you see those symptom clusters and you say, wow, you know, acupuncture could really help with the number of these symptoms uh, or uh, you could really benefit from X or Y. And it also identifies, I think, some of the symptoms that we don't have great solutions for in our current Western paradigm, like fatigue and sleep disturbances and integrative medicine really may be holding the key to improving uh, the patient experience by uh, opening the toolbox. So I think the um, uh, e- expanding that, and I think that's where we look towards all the work that you and your colleagues at MD Anderson are, have done and are doing to, to look for um, how the ESAS has informed that, but also then how we put that into practice. Um, we've got a little bit of time left, and I'm really looking at... Um, so, you know, thank you again for, for your time, but I think that I've been reading what you've been publishing later. You, I, I never know if you're the person who's Twittering or you've got a little Twitter monster behind person behind the scenes, but I have noticed that of late there's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of uh, inf- a lot of stuff on self care and the um, and care delivery and the impact of COVID on um, us as practitioners, the delivery of integrative therapies, the delivery of supportive care, and um, for you in the US, you've been so affected by what's been happening, and I'm wondering if you had anything that you would like to say. Of what's been happening for all of you in this space and how you've adapted your service and your approach to not only caring for the patient but caring for each other?
2: Um. Absolutely, Edward. It was a terrible year. It was a terrible year. It was a terrible year for the patients who died alone, who died isolated from their loved ones, who had incredible stress about them getting ill, their families uh, members getting ill, financial disaster, uh, and isolation. And so uh, our teams were witnessing all that, and they had moral distress. Why why would not this 30-year-old person not have their loved one by their side at the moment they are they're dying or have to do a communication through through Zoom or video. And then having our lawyers and our attorneys telling us, oh no, you can use this platform, you cannot use that other one. We violated everything. We just went and said, get your telephone, get whatever you can, see your loved one, communicate, and we will communicate with you uh, because this is a this is a terrible emergency. And and that level of suffering um, was was uh unprecedented i had i had not seen that uh, during my you know 41 years as, as a physician to to this level and so that uh from my perspective what do you do when you have these things well we try to we try to contribute and we try to pitch in and you know i don't have any money i'm not a wealthy person but i can publish and i can uh, in with some interventions that can be useful to someone else. And so we did surveys of our people about what worked and we didn't. We published our transition into the virtual environment and what it did. And what interventions from uh, yoga and breathing interventions for healthcare professionals to, um, to um, you know, um, self-care checklists that were yeah. used by our clinicians and which ones anonymously they reported as being useful or not useful. And so we also made a point of trying to do that as fast as possible and put it out there for, for anybody to, to be able to take advantage. Um, I suspect, uh, s- sadly, that there are going to be other pandemics and other emergencies and that are learning from what has happened, are learning from the transitions we had to make. Uh, And the way we can relieve suffering with very, very, very little in our hands. Our presence can be healing. Our our listening can be healing. Our holding a hand can be healing. So finding that room in front of a suffering person and grabbing that video camera or that telephone to talk to their loved ones who are not seeing that person and reassure them that we're going to do our best to keep their their loved one taken care of, and, 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 and as well as possible, all those resources will help, will help those who will come uh, uh, into the future. And, and so we learned an awful lot. I have to say that there are some silver linings to this horrible situation. And one of them has been a bigger level of respect by oriented colleagues who the personhood-oriented colleagues. We found that they were using us more, they were asking us into places where they did not want us before. ICU comes to mind, many of the uh, aggressive care areas come to mind, where before they kind of said, well, we don't really need you here, to say, uh, we need you here, we need more of you, we need you a lot, and so, uh, also, it gave a sense of purpose to some of our team members. The fact that our team was able to relieve uh, suffering uh, when others were not able, it was, was very reassuring to many of them that they had made the right career choice. So it has been a terrible time. One, I would, for one, would have preferred not to have to run a, a, a department or a center or team under these circumstances, uh, but we learned an awful lot I think there's still going to be some publishing to be done about this into the future. We'll do that. And I think we hopefully leave this crisis, as it looks like we're starting to leave it behind slowly in the United States, uh, we leave this crisis better equipped for the next one. Uh, I really hope and pray that I'm not going to be there for the next one, but for whoever needs to do it, you, Judy, and Santosh. I'm only a little bit ones, younger
1: than uh, you, Eduardo.
2: <laughs> they, they, y'all, y'all will be a little bit better equipped.
3: Eduardo, can, can, I, can I ask a question about uh, self-care, but also just about where we're moving in this field? You know, um, as a medical oncologist, uh, you know, sometimes I get very busy, high acuity. Uh, there's a high rate of burnout. Uh, I know that, that, as you mentioned, palliative care has become very busy, especially as we have more and more cancer patients. And you mentioned just part of what we do in supportive care and integrative is we spend time with patients. But if you put two and two together, if this becomes a model of care, we will run out of providers very quickly because we have so many cancer patients. How do we prevent burning out is the first question and make this sustainable um, and deliver this kind of care. And how can we have a model where we deliver this kind of care outside of you know, uh, MD Anderson in Houston.
2: Yes, those are wonderful points, Santosh. I would say two things. Um, when people say, oh, teach people how to fish and then you won't need them, my response is, so what are you doing when you're doing a medical oncology cleaning? Are you twirling your thumbs? Are you playing darts? Or are you seeing patients busily? Because if you are doing that and your day is full, how are you going to fit 25 more minutes or 30 more minutes per patient tomorrow. It's not a reasonable proposal and it's almost disrespectful to those people who are practicing in their area and they are quite busy to tell them, why don't you acquire another 30, 35 minutes and you ask this question, do this management, do this assessment and then plug it into your practice. The patient needs attention. The patient needs that type of care. And what happens is if you have someone like me, I can do And I measure that with my fellows. Uh, If I have someone who has not been trained in palliative care, uh, it takes them about 45 minutes when they start the fellowship to get a patient into the emotional areas and expressive and make them cry. It takes me about eight minutes because I've been doing it for so long (laughs) that I can get there quite fast. The same as an experienced surgeon will do a cholecystectomy in 25 minutes, And a non-experienced one might take three years and the anesthetist is gonna be angry and everybody's gonna say it takes forever. Why can't he find the darn gallbladder, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, having a team that will be at the site of the cancer treating team and will deal in an effective, fast uh, way with personhood care is the way to avoid burnout and suffering for those clinicians. Now, that team needs to have the size that is necessary for each institution. And then um, you're saying something important, Santosh. Imagine if the chief medical officer went and told the surgeon, I need you to do your pancreatectomies in 25 minutes each. Um, First of all, they would be recorded because they would appear in the New York Times the day after, but second, the surgeon would laugh and say, what do you mean? I mean, I'm not, you know, I barely able to get to the pancreas in 25 minutes and now you want me to cut and, and shorten and that's not feasible. So an intervention that requires personhood care has a little bit of duration. It has to be respected. And then it's much better that you have less encounters, but that resolve the problem for that particular patient rather than having, Large number of half-done encounters, half pancreatectomies, one-third pancreatectomies <laughs> that at the end are not helping anyone, and then dimension the programs to the size that will uh, that will that will address uh, the the patient needs. That I think will help burnout on everybody.
1: And I think that is such an important point. I think that you know it, it is quite amazing how quickly we can get to the point when we need to. Over years of uh, getting people to cry within a few minutes if we if that's where you're heading, but um it is the skill of palliative care for me that has taken me to the point where I practice in- integrate that into my supportive care and integrative oncology work as well as when I switch hats and Uh, put back on my palliative care end of life hat, which I think actually is the same hat that I wear right throughout. I just uh, enjoy using the skills from the time of diagnosis, which I think is from your teaching. And it leads to uh, the development of, I think, what the other gift that we've received from COVID is developing online resources and encouraging self-empowerment. So there is that really important space of um, dealing with people who who have been dying through the pandemic and very unwell and separated from their loved ones due to illness from the pandemic, but also all those people at home living with cancer not having access to the resources. I know that the Society of Integrative Oncology Task Force has put uh, in motion a a guide to how to provide a consultation and how to develop resources, but I think the the key of... um, Finding out what the patient needs using uh, validated questionnaires, and then a um, developing resources to reduce the one-on-one the reliance on the one-on-one consultation with the palli- with the integrative medicine or the supportive care or the palliative care specialists um, assists us, and hopefully will assist us with our burnout as we develop this field because the challenge is. Um, the The cost effectiveness of the cost benefit of having a person there, I agree with you. We should be alongside every medical specialist that are delivering cancer care, providing that intervention in a timely way. Do we have an intervention that's billable as easily as the the surgeons that do the full pancreatectomy, not the quarter one, but the um it's. It's a complex puzzle, I think, that we're just starting to unpack. I don't, I think I've just rambled a little bit, but I think the idea is that it's the self-empowerment, the self-efficacy, using our tools effectively and working out how to use the digital space and um, to enhance the delivery of what we provide.
2: Yeah, I think that was a wonderful comment, Judy, and I 100% agree with that. Not everybody needs a pancreatectomy. Not everybody needs a surgeon when they have cancer. Some of or your our gone. skills and our association, yeah. according to patient need, in a patient-centered way, is the trick. And I think doing some uh, universal screening at the point of entry to the institution is wonderful, and then deploying ourselves in a wise manner so that they are there. And then, um, you know, uh, yes, one of the virtual care advantages, and I think, Santosh brought the point of, what do you do when uh, you're not operating in, in Sydney or in Houston uh, or, in, or in Phoenix? Uh, uh, well, uh, virtual care is a wonderful option. Uh, the Uh, Bush pilots and the Canadian Bush pilots and the Australian Bush pilots are probably um, feeling shaky now because probably uh, virtual care is gonna put some of them out of work. But the reality is um, we can access people now and we can access people that we could not access before. One thing to remember is uh, the time it takes is not less. And so that clinician, whether they are in Houston, or they are in a small community, they have to put those minutes. And therefore there has to be appropriate planning so that the time can be paid by someone who is going to uh, be delivering that care to that patient. But the opportunities are enormous. I think that uh, the virtual care opens the possibility of integrative care of high quality to patients who are living in communities where that care is in, unimaginable today.
1: Yeah. And I think it's going to change the face of cancer care delivery and um, enabling people to stay well during their cancer treatment and, um, and beyond. So I'm quite excited by the space. I'm, as I said, I'm a glass-half-full person. I have to be that person, but I rely on people like you to give, help us with the evidence and the structure so we can move forward. Thank you so much, Eduardo, for your time. But I think I would love to just conclude. Santosh, did you have a anything that you would like to add?:
3: No, I mean, I, I think that that's all great. Uh, you know, I just i I think that as we develop these models of care, we do have to be mindful of being able to deliver it. That's my main thing. I mean, I know yeah. that already pa- palliative care is very popular. Um, And our, our palliative care doctors are very busy um, and that's good in terms of being able to um, ramp up uh, consults and train more people. But as we know, it takes a long time to train and it's made even more complex in integrative oncology because there's no accepted fellowship or um, you know, so it becomes kind of complicated because at least in palliative care, you can say, Hey, we have this many palliative care doctors. Whereas an in integrative, we can't even say that. It depends how you define it, and so um, I do think that's something for us to wrestle with: is, um, is, uh, you know, does everybody or how many people need this kind of care? Can everybody provide it? Um, you know, what's the crossover? And, um, and, and then, and then get to a point where we get insurance companies to not only reimburse us, but we have a training platform where we say, this is the need, you know, just like with primary care, with medical oncology, we have a shortage of providers. And I see that happening in our field as well. And so if we value this kind of care, we have to have a way to practically deliver it. You know, I think, especially as the research comes forward.
1: And I, I totally agree with that, Santosh, and I see, um, I always draw this picture of supportive care being this umbrella and with under that umbrella is integrative oncology, the multidisciplinary team, the palliative care specialist, the palliative care specialist service. But we don't need to use the resources of the palliative care specialist services for um, early proactive supportive care in a lot of this space. So it's really working out how you get a a model that works for different institutions. And I know that, Santosh, as you're developing your... Service there and looking at how do you develop this. I think we're all struggling with we can develop the model, but then how do you pay for it and how and how do you make it sustainable? Um, and how do you train somebody else? You know, as we start looking at retirement, you're younger than me, and I'm a little bit younger than Eduardo, but not much. Eduardo, the um, how do we um start training others to? we've succeeded in palliative care, but how do we bring this forward and make it a a specialty in its own right because it is a rapidly growing field. And the guys in the, at the Christie in the UK are talking about should supportive care be a, a specialty on its own? So we're starting to see that it it's too much just to be under the umbrella of palliative care. It needs to be holistic supportive care. Integrative oncology is, a, I believe, a critical part of of that care. So it's a very exciting space um, to be involved in. Yeah.
2: And I would say don't, I mean, the the, 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 the most we can do is to, is to uh, work locally and think globally and don't worry too much about what might happen in other areas. Get a nice job done in your place. Grow at the pace you can grow. And if you cannot grow, don't worry and stay where you're where you are, at the size you are, enjoy the ride, enjoy <laughs> the care you're delivering and the papers you're publishing and so on, so that you apply to yourself the integrative care that you are applying to others. And the movement is, the wind is behind your sails collectively. And so things are going to get better, uh, over time. And then, uh, I know that sometimes things look overwhelming at the beginning of any trip. But I think that, and you are starting the trip a little bit later than we started. Those are in supportive and palliative care. Uh, I, all my career, I always thought that what my job is to hire people who work harder and better than me and get their backs, and then I can relax. And so that's what i done with the integrative ones. I just got wonderful people, and now my job is just to get their backs and have them uh, do the heavy lifting, and then I can <laughs> uh, go to Australia and go to Phoenix and, and, and all those places as soon as COVID allows us. As,
1: as soon as we open our borders, I think we're thinking 2024, by the way, our <laughs> vaccine process <laughs> is going. Um, <laughs> The um, but I think it is a wonderful, it's a wonderful message, isn't it? It's I think that um, it is. Uh, I always think outside of my institution um with, and so I think to Santosh. But I think we are looking at how we do move this field forward because it's so important to cancer care. And the more, um, uh, and Eduardo, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time today in um in joining us on this podcast you know for the it's been and thank you santosh for co-hosting with me i think this is a um it's it's such an interesting space it's such an interesting topic and learning from the wisdom of uh from your wisdom is really will help us move the field forward And i hope everybody uh has enjoyed um this discussion so thank you very much